Folks, welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. This one is from a country we haven't been to before. I am in Oslo in Norway, a very interesting and expensive country. We have a very interesting guest who is not fully Norwegian, but lives here and has an amazing job, uh, which, which she'll talk about. She is a curator, administrator, facilitator, someone who basically tries to help artists show their work as best as they can and her name is May Zitu welcome to the podcast thank you very much so May tell me what you do for a living right now um, I think like anyone working in the arts you have several jobs because no one job often pays all the bills so I work uh, in a craft gallery right. in Bergen mm-hmm. and I'm trying to invest in my own project, making some time for that. Right. Another job I do as well is I work as a consultant for a marine ingredients producer. Mm. But that also works into an interest I have for everything that comes out of the ocean. Okay, well let's come back to that one. The <laughs> thing that struck me most about Norway is the size of the place when I arrived. I just didn't imagine. I was kind of hoping to go up to a place where May is working at the moment, which we'll talk about in a second, but it was something like a three and a half hour flight to get up there, and I was like, what? That's like going across America. Norway's coastline is 15,000 miles, which is almost, would stretch halfway around the world. You're working in Nixon. In Nixon. My family come from Nixon. Okay. I'm sixth generation there. Nixon Valley, they call it. It's been inhabited since the Viking times. Yes. And it has a reputation for having booms and busts every 100 to 200 years. So recently, at the turn of century, it was one of Norway's largest fishing ports. Um, But then with centralization, government policy, and, you know, modern technology, it overnight became more of a ghost ghost town. So Nixon is, for those of you who know Norway as a sort of a, a long, thin country with a sort of bell at the bottom, is right up at the very top, where you presume to get full summers, right? Where the sun yes. doesn't go down at all. Exactly. What's that like? It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's, Do you get um, cranky? No, no. It's like everyone's hyperactive all summer, and then you have this wonderful hibernation period in winter where it's dark. Northern lights every second night sort of thing? Not quite, but uh, but quite often. It's a beautiful place. You should definitely come and visit. What are you doing in Nixon? In Nixon, I'm restoring an old building that's about 600 square meters. Um, it's an old, it used to be an old fishing warehouse that was about to fall into the sea. It's the last building that's left that needs to be restored. Most of the other old buildings have either fallen into the ocean or then been redeveloped by um, people in the tourist industry. So is it a big tourist place? It is. There's about 30,000 tourists there. Ah. And it's only two very small islands with 20 inhabitants. Really? So it's um, it started about 15 years ago. Right. A lot of artists moved back to the area and gave it a new lease of life. But since then, of course, it's attracted then tourists and investors. And that's half of what my project is about. It's a conservation project. It's saving space for the creative people because at the moment there's no one can afford to come and work there if you're not a rich tourist and that's kind of killing a bit of the identity of the place and so the the project that you're restoring is, a, is are you making it into a gallery i'm making it into an open workspace so uh, it's flexible okay. all right because i think the way a lot of creative people work today you don't need the studio with this stephanie you know not that many people are painting paintings and if anything, I'm trying to move away, or on purpose, 
the kind of art and the projects I like to work on are much more about collaboration, experimenting, allowing yourself to fail and just seeing what happens. Yeah. I think often in those uncertain moments, some of the most interesting things happen. And the North Norwegian region is very well known for these amazing landscapes and it almost becomes a bit pornographic. Yeah, artists that come up there and they get so struck by nature that the dialogue and exchanges don't go beyond the beautiful mountains and the blue sea yeah. and the northern lights. And I think there's so many more stories that need to be told about that region. So that's why I'd like to create a space where people can come and find out about those stories and tell those stories. This part of Norway is the Norway, I guess, that I didn't see and I hope to see. <laughs> this kind of deep rock faces with beautiful inlets. Am I picturing it right up there? It's amazing. I mean, it's... Um, even for most Norwegians, the northern region's a bit unknown. It's a bit like a Norwegian colony. White sandy beaches and really? turquoise seas. Meadows full of flowers and all kinds of colors. So you wouldn't imagine it. And what I say to a lot of people is that at least the Vesterorden section of North Norway reminds me a lot of Borneo. Okay. It's got that, or at least in summer, it's got that all that sunshine. Everything grows extra big and extra green and everything's almost... Um, luminous. Right. I mean, nice segue there to maybe come back to Nixon and come full circle. You mentioned Borneo. You told me before we started that you were born in Borneo. I was actually born in London. Oh, you're born in London. Sorry. It's, it's okay. very confusing, even okay. for myself. I so you're how many generation Nixon? Six. Have you still got family in Nixon? I do. My mother, she's a painter. Is she? Okay. So will she be oh, all be over this project? Does she love the fact that her daughter's returned? Yes, and we're, and we're doing a lot of it together as well. Okay, great. Mm. So you were born in London. What was the Borneo thing you were talking about? My father's from Borneo. He was a law student in London. I met my mother, who was an art student at Camberwell. Oh. They had me there, and then they moved to Borneo. And I Famous s- for its orangutans. Yes, I had an orangutan pet. You had an orangutan pet? <laughs> What was a that friend, like? A what friend. was a friend? A friend. What do they call them? Old man of the forest. Yes, they're lovely. They're really funny, cheeky. Um, and still endangered. They are, unfortunately. Yeah, wildlife conservation is—it's um, difficult. Most of the natural rainforest in Borneo has been chopped down for logging and um, yeah. into plantations. There are a lot of similar issues in Borneo as North Norway. They're both oil-producing regions. There's a lot of political contest about who owns the resources along the coast. Mm. Your first memories are of Borneo? Yes, absolutely. And how long did you spend there? Um, I was there till I was about ten and a half. So what was it like growing up there? It was wild. It was fantastic. Um, My parents are quite, they were activists, artists, always doing projects. We had people from all over the world coming. Is your father still with us or is he out there? Yes, he is. He is... um, he lives between Borneo and Copenhagen. Okay. <laughs> we're all over the place. Had you brothers and sisters, or were you...? I have one sister and uh, three half-brothers and sisters in Copenhagen. Okay. So um, everything's everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, growing up in Borneo, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's grown up in Borneo. Was it a, was it a happy childhood? What was Paint a picture for me of what, what, what your memories are. We used to live by the sea. My parents are quite... Um, individual, so they would just find a piece of land and build their own house, and we'd be like uh, playing on the beach, me and my sister, or with our orangutan. Mm, what about that. schools? Were they good schools, or did you? Well, I wasn't sent to school till I was a lot older. Really? My, my parents had a philosophy. They self-taught you. Well, they said, you know, school of life is a pretty good, good place to so start. So, what age out. were you when you were to school? I was seven when I first went to wow. school. Wow. Okay. And my first lesson, spelling test. And? It was horrendous. 
I couldn't spell. I couldn't. Okay. I couldn't read or write. Oh, you couldn't read or write. Okay. No, 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 no. So, would you advocate that upbringing for a child or not? No, not really. I mean. But I, what if they were taught to spell and read and write? Absolutely. And that, right? Absolutely. I mean, you you catch up in the end. And it taught me a few kind of techniques because I changed schools and moved to different countries quite often. So you learn this kind of way of scoping out the system. And were you terrified going to school when you were seven? I think I was very ready. You know, other kids. You wanted to meet other kids. I did. So was a lot of your life just you and your sister growing up? Yes. And the orangutan, of course. Yeah, our parents used to take us into the jungle and lots of amazing adventures. So it was, and you know, you don't know anything else. You and you're around, really you're around adults a lot, right? So you're listening to adult conversations, the two of you are. Yes, you know, all this idealists and yeah. um, campaigners wanting to save the rainforest and anti-logging. So it does give you a framework for your life that's very unique. You, you, you kind of brought up to think, you know, you can, anything's possible, but what? reality might be a bit different. So where did you go to school that time? I went to an Australian school in a place called Kota Kinabalu. Kota Kinabalu, yeah. In Borneo. Yeah, which is a very famous holiday touristy it is now, place. Yeah. But, you know, when we moved there, no one would. We were the only people out on the islands. Uh, so we, my parents used to have a surf, windsurfer each, put us on the back and then sail out, and we'd just be exploring and picking shells. And um, but now it's just full of tourists and boats and noisy and. And then, so your art thing was that cultured in school or from your mother? Or both? I, I think you kind of get it intravenously the DNA. and subconsciously. Yeah. Like all kids, I like to draw and paint. But as a career, I deliberately kind of stayed away from it. I, I think, I shouldn't really say this, it's really uncool. But to describe who I was as a teenager, I don't think you seem absolutely fabulous. <laughs> Mum, she'll kill me for saying this, is <laughs> a mixture between the two. And I was very much the daughter. You know, I used to wear shirts buttoned up and geeky and someone who wanted things to be organized and in their place and you know very black and white and you know I did economics and statistics I think my parents are a bit disappointed <laughs> you know I think my my mother tried oh she actually got me into art college year after year and saying you know you can change degree but at the end she kind of said well someone's got to make the money in the family <laughs> So I guess it was um, it was okay, but I came full circle. You can't run away from who you really are or your past or your... Mm, so when did you leave Southeast Asia? What was the... When I was about 12, I, um, I was sent to boarding school in okay. the north of England. It was the same school that um, Jane Eyre went to, and it's wow. the same school that's in Charlotte Bronte. And it... It's very similar. <laughs> it hadn't changed much. <laughs> what was it? So, <laughs> so you suddenly arrive in dreary England, Victorian oh, era. It was a rainy day, driving through the Lake District, and I think Jason Donovan was on the radio. Some really sad song, and all I remember is the raindrops and going, and you know, tweed, itchy uniform that my mother had. She said those skirts are way too long, so she chopped them all off, you know, just above my thigh. So I was, re I stood out from day one. <laughs> that and were you? Girl. What was your? Can you remember your mindset? Were you fearful or excited that there was an adventure? Or yeah, I mean, you know, you grew up reading about St Trinian's and all yeah. the boarding school and Tom Brown school days and all that, but the reality is quite different. I wish I'd read Charlotte Bronte before I went. <laughs> Was she constantly being referenced? 
it was... Charlotte Bronte wouldn't have done that, I'll tell you. She was a good girl. <laughs> no, I mean, it was really... Um, yeah, I mean, I would never send my child to boarding school. Yeah, it's amazing how many people who have been to boarding school say that. Several of the girls in my year have ended up becoming psychiatrists. And they say there is this whole theory that they do the same thing in the prison service, in boarding schools. The only way to adapt is to break a kid down completely yeah. and then you build up new rules. Yeah. Um, it's pretty tough. Did you do like five or six years in the boarding school? Yeah, I did GCSEs and A-levels. But of course it turned out to be quite different because it's the first place I've encountered racism. Let's talk about that. You know, cultural differences. I was the only foreign student in a school of 400, um, mostly northerners. So you were considered Asian? Asian. Some people thought I was a princess. You know, right. misconceptions. Um, people in my dorms would wash the showers down after me because really? I must be extra dirty being God. you know I must have lived in um, mud huts there's a lot of misconceptions and actually the worst was from the teachers because I'm half Chinese they put me into all the top sets <laughs> I'm not that good and yeah. I, and I she's jump. from China she must be smart <laughs> no 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 um, whenever they met me oh, you were the best <laughs> yeah. Here, take and the I'm, violin. And I'm really, really not. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and quite condescending. And, you know, you're foreign, so you really shouldn't do European languages. So I signed up for Latin and French. And I really regretted it, but I wouldn't not do it. Did this eventually break down, though, when they got to know you? Not, not really. Not really. really. So did not you feel really. isolated for the whole... A little bit. Right. But, um, you know, as my dad said, you're there for the education, not to make friends. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but you know, had an amazing, the good, they had an amazing art department. This is where you started to start making art, or? Potentially, but the system kind of beat it out of me. They actually had an intervention, because I got into art college, but they said to me, do you want to be poor and starving? And so they, because I, I was also good at sciences, they more or less forced me to do maths. But then, on the other hand, you have your parents who would have been probably, your mother particularly, saying, no, 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 she's going to do art. You're kind of isolated from your parents. Okay, so they don't really have input. Not really. So you're what age when you get pushed into, what did you say to the economics and statistics? Is that what you said? Um, at university, yeah. yes. So what, what university did you go to? I went to London University. Okay, so mm -hmm. a little bit less racism, I'm sure. Yes, it was yeah. great. It okay. was fantastic. <laughs> that was, um, university was amazing. But it's, it's, like, it's a bit like Roald Dahl, who says the best thing about boarding school is that when you leave it, you just find out the world is so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's funny the thing about racism, when I went to China, I worked in China for about two years in Guangzhou, and it was the first time I really understood what racism must be like. There was a very anti-Guaylo or white person or whatever the, the, the words were that was quite opaque. Now, I wasn't in any way lacking in privilege and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. In fact, part of the fact that they didn't like us was because we had that. But you could feel that, they were, that you weren't from around these parts and that you weren't that welcome. Mm. And I'd never experienced it before. And it, I, I thought it was a very valuable lesson I learned. Particularly a lot of, sorry to all my British friends who might be listening to this who um, were out there at the time, but being Irish, I got a, I got a, a pass a lot of the time because we're not as colonial and as... Um, it's like the Canadians and Americans. Yes, yeah. And, 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 but like some of my English friends were just so, you know, shouty, 
they, they, they don't, you don't understand me. I'll shout. That will that will you really don't help. Yeah, me. I'll rub Chinese people's heads because they hate that. But I'll do it because I'm I'm English and I can do everything. And I, I just found like what? I have a quite funny story about that because I have a friend um, who's half Zimbabwe and half English, and he was sent to China to teach English in a local village. So they think all English people are black. Which I think is great. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> So you're down in the uh, London University and things start getting better then. Oh, it was great. You know, it went a bit crazy. Right. No, I mean, this is... Crazy how? This early 90s. This is right. down drum and bass and amazing club scene. It was still the time where everyone could afford to live in central London. Made some amazing friends that I'm still friends with and all kinds of adventures. So did, the, <laughs> did, did all the kind of freedom burst out of you and you start trying everything and mm. going mad and doing all that stuff yeah I got it out of my system pretty early okay thank goodness and what about the studying bit was that at all well I had to pay foreign fees so um, I remember going down Edgeware Road and actually going to an Irish pub and saying please can you teach me how to um, how to pull a pint so I worked for free for a week to okay. kind of learn the ropes because I actually I'm jumping I actually got a job at Ministry of Sound Right. Because I lied and I said that I I was uh, I knew how to mix cocktails, so I got the job as a head bartender, then VIP <laughs> bar. But I didn't even know how to pull a pint. Um, so you lasted a day? No, 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 no. I mean, I guess perhaps at that time as well, Ministry of Sound people were quite, um, yeah, their expectations of mixed cocktails. Yeah, it's a it's a plastic cup and it's late at night and you just drink yeah, it. Yeah, it was. We don't need any umbrellas. It, it was and, Red Bull and vodka yeah, yeah. and Ribena. Which is easy. Yeah. So that's what I did for university. So I'd finished at four or five in the morning and be at lectures by, you know, nine. Wow. <laughs> Which is what you can do when you're young. Of course. Of yeah, course. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. You graduated? I did. I with did quite well. A uh, statistics and economics degree. Mm. And then what happened? And then I kind of fell into art ish again. I worked for a design agency to do their kind of business strategy and to start up a new art label for them. What year are we now? 1999. Okay. That was that was amazing. You know, at that time I got paid the same as an art director, and I went to exhibitions and. So you were you were you were quite at the epicenter of things in London during the late 90s. Yeah. It, it was a real, a real time of opportunities. If you had ideas and a bit of energy and guts. You know, well, Emin and all these people were breaking out around then, right? And, and uh, Damien Hurst and even Banksy, they were, that was around the, yeah, the Bristol School and all that stuff. They were all... Yeah, that was about the, it was a little bit before, little but, bit before, it, but yeah. it was a great time for kind of graphic design. Any, anything was possible and, you know, being young and was, a cool, was an okay thing then. You know. Had your mother moved, moved back to Norway at this stage? Yes, she had. So would you travel back and forth from London to Norway much, or did you just I, stay I, there? I stayed in, like, okay. once, often with big cities, you kind of get stuck, and you yeah. get stuck often within zones one and two. Yeah. You know, you, you, yeah, you get swallowed up by were, the city. Were you, I'm just intrigued about how your parents, at this stage you're now doing very well, and you've, you're, you're a grown woman, and you're doing well. What were they, do you, I mean, you don't have to say if you don't, I mean, I'm sure you're, hello mum if you're listening, but what, what, what do you think they were looking at you as? Were they proud of you? Were they? Do they think, oh, girl's done well? I guess they're happy when you're out the house and you can do it <laughs> yourself. But um, I think they've always wondered a bit, you know. I've always been a bit here, there and everywhere and doing lots of projects. And um, my mum did a portrait, a painting of me when I was 12, a self-portrait of what she thought I looked like. She's an abstract artist. And it's actually a big red blob on something that looks like a skateboard. 
because she never knows where I'm going and what I'm doing. Okay. I think that's... When you were 12, she did this? Yes. Ah, it's okay. very prophetic. I'm, I'm still skating around. Yeah. So now you're in your mid-20s kind of thing, I suppose? Was there a moment that you went, okay, I've got to change well, again? Or what I was did, it? because I got really freaked out by the art world. You know, there was a lot of um, people in velvet hairbands. And did, you, did you feel it was bullshit? Pretty, yeah, I, I have this kind of bullshit alarm. And I was pretty inexperienced. You know, I went to meetings and people report back to my boss and say, you know, everyone runs through her veins. <laughs> so I think I was a bit too naive and innocent and I could feel myself being eaten up by it. So I decided to go back to what my degree kind of had taught me. So then I became, I was, I got into the graduate ma uh, management training scheme for British Telecom. Cheekers. <laughs> so, That's a jump. <laughs> I know, it's, I, I hope this isn't too confusing. No, no, I love it. I love, that's it's, exactly the people I want to talk it's to. It's all over the place. Yeah, it's great. And you kind of wonder if there ever was a plan. But I think the plan is to stick each chapter for what it is. And you learn something at the end of each, hopefully. Well, so you were going to British Telecom graduate training to do statistics or something? Well, I was brought in on this program where they're supposed to train, you know, the future top management at British Telecom. And I tried to keep my head low and, you know, out of too much trouble and just, you know, learn the trade. Most of the managers come from, you know, they've been engineers and they've worked their way up through the ranks. So suddenly a 20-year-old coming in as a junior manager was... So, problematic. So there's yeah. a few tests I had to do, so I know how to climb a telephone pole and stuff like right. that. I've done those engineer courses, but I was then put in a new media division. This was when everyone was investing in all kinds of internet startups, and so I mean, my first job was manager sales team. It just feels so incongruous. Which was the, which was the worst. Uh, yeah, it feels like something your dad would have told you to do, and you go, I don't want to do this anymore. But it was, you know, it was really exciting times. Yeah, you yeah. Know, at that time. British Telecom have an amazing um, research lab in um, Bexley. I mean, really amazing shit that they've So developed. we're now at the dawn of the internet, is that right? There was a lot of stuff being developed. We're modems. But nothing, but nothing went to market. They had fiber then. I don't know if I can say this, yeah. but they didn't, they w didn't want to roll it out. So I did all these costing plans for the future. Or British the Telecom, internet. imagine what you might have done if you had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and I think seeing all these amazing opportunities and working with a big company like that that's quite incumbent because they'd invested in lots of internet companies and they used me as a kind of they sent me in they're like find out what it's all about and what we can do with them we just spent x million buying them up we haven't got a clue what we're going to do so i had to report back but then everyone thought i was kind of a spy because when i go to our invested company yeah i think she's here to spy on us and she's here to cut jobs and then when i came back to british telecom they're like oh, she's joined the other side so i guess i've always I always end up being a bit of an outsider, mm. but I, do, I think it's, it's good to stand on the outside with a bit of a different perspective. Um, Did you spend long with British Telecom? Two years. I jumped off ship before my program was finished, and I went over to a company called Excite. Okay. Oh, we all remember Excite. Whatever mm. happened to them? We were actually having a reunion in London. In yeah. So Excite were, for, for some of the younger <laughs> listeners, at the time of, uh, actually before Google, it was mm -hmm. basically, what were they? Ask Jeeves, Excite, and Yahoo. Yes, were the three those main were the three search engines yeah, and we search should have we should have and Yahoo. web crawler we web crawler that I, was another one I still can't use Yahoo <laughs> it's still very small I'm still surprised Yahoo is still going after all the missteps they've taken <laughs> through the years yeah no so it was um, and that was great you know you were invent, inventing yeah. web pages and advertising models and being an American company they had access to all this 
dodgy statistics, I guess. You know, yeah. huge databases. What happened after Excite? As if that wasn't enough excitement. <laughs> well, you know, I think with every job, you, you learn what you're not good at and what you like to learn more about. And I guess we were working with a lot of ad agencies. And I was managing a lot of their campaigns and their banners. And I thought, oh, I'd like to get more creative. You know, yeah. there's more we can do than banners and text links. So yeah. then I went agency side. And then I went to join Wheel Group. Right. And then suddenly I was managing entertainment clients. So I had Warner Music account and um, Buena Vista. So doing lots of PR and on. PR for the big blockbusters and all that stuff. Okay, that was exciting. So you're now kind of getting lots back of close to yeah. You're getting back close to the the earlier time when you first for, were you first in the I mean, art I think, world. I mean, it's it's. I was always asking myself, why am I doing it? What is it about advertising? But it's kind of it's about finding out how people think, tell stories in different ways, and reach people and convince them and sell them something yeah. convincingly. So it's really understanding where people are at. What. What are they concerned about? You know, having your finger on whatever's going on out there. Yeah. And I think although advertising is a bit of a shady, dark place, there is a lot of communication going on. That was my big problem. I mean, uh, you always try and self-justify. If you're, if you're selling cigarettes, you go, well, people don't have to smoke. No. Yeah, but you don't have to make them. You know, I mean, everyone who's got a kind of a, 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 a job that's got questionable ethics... Mm always manages to find a way of saying well it's not me well no one asked me well I'm just doing my job I think when I finished when I kind of flamed out of advertising it was because I started just con- continually questioning the low grubby nature of the business you know at the start I was all full of the joys going I'm going to make great funny ads and people but believe it yeah and then you work for Be Real and then I took a year off because oh. uh, there was a huge uh, or two years off actually there was a huge internet bubble Boom, at bust, first. Yep. and then everyone's doing same old same old and I thought no no you know I'd like to try something new but I took a year out I went surfing <laughs> where I started in wait 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 now are you good were you a good surfer or this you... is a funny thing because right. I, I was in I started in Sydney and me being me you know I hate not doing anything or being productive so I signed up for film course I had an assistant job in documentary it was brilliant because I, I got as a gift lessons at surf school. But I was a real city girl going, oh my God, sitting in a van, people with dreadlocks going, oh my God, what am I doing? This really isn't for me. But so, it's the only yeah. thing I've ever done. I just got up on the board and started surfing. Someone came up to me and I was surfing and went, oh, I like your style. How long have you been surfing for? I went, Three about hours. About an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fantastic. Why do you think you were able to do that? Because it's really hard. I have no clue. I have no clue. I'm really not especially sporty or anything so that was really it was so much fun did you um, love Sydney when you went there Sydney's a fun place but I find it's there's something about and perhaps that's kind of growing up in the colonies and growing up in London you know where the world kind of comes together it, Sydney's a beautiful place people are lovely and the lifestyle's great but I, I always feel we have some kind of responsibility as a someone living in the world and there it was everyone's dressed in white and you know it's a bit What's that Truman Show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that scared me a bit. I didn't understand how, and it has a, a history not that long ago of quite racist behaviour. Absolutely. Yeah. And but well, you would have been there around the John Howard, the Corby thing, where mm. we were. It's it's a very activist-led place, though, as well. I mean, the Australians are pretty good on you know on a lot of issues like on that. Gay issues and all you know. Yeah. But not 
not refugees and yeah, race yeah, issues yeah, yeah, yeah. and I had a lot of discussions and maybe it's sorry to my Australian friends but you know I talk about multiculturalism and it would always start with but look at our food yeah and no. the food is culture but we're talking about people you yeah. know, how often at that time you didn't see a lot of mixed race Chinese will stick to Chinese yeah. Indians to Indians I mean Sydney when you go outside the white belt or whatever yeah. you want to call it, the privilege belt mm. I mean Blacktown and Campbelltown there's all ghettos from, from and, all over the world and being you know mixed race myself I felt it you know and, and um but of course I had a great time and I enjoyed it but just talk about that mixed race issue where where did you feel at this stage of your life that you were as a as a person did you feel you were I've always felt maybe till recently most Malaysian but as you become you know I'm I'm female I'm not Muslim I look more European yeah. and I don't speak Malay so it's very hard for me to integrate but I guess from the very start of your life you've always had this probably ingrained ability to understand like when you talked about when you first went to school in England the way you were treated you were like what the hell is this so you were able to see it from a kind of a, 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 a minority point of view yeah I guess I've always been quite lucky because I it's quite hard to pin down what I look like and, it, yes. and it's great fun because then no one puts me in a box and yeah. I guess in England not being British I, I didn't have to join in the class silliness that yeah, exists yeah. which is terribly silly Terribly silly. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but, it, but it really stops. Great people could be doing great things together, but they won't because one reads The Guardian and one reads The Telegraph. Yeah. It's that basic. More than, say, me, you would have a kind of a, a trigger, maybe even a subconscious trigger, of, of being much more, I think, uh, aware of stuff before mm. I might. You know, someone calls an Irish or Paddy or Mick and we kind of laugh it off and say, yes, we'll just go and have another nine pints and get drunk, like a cliche. I mean, even that time in Australia... I remember they were trying to get Corabi going and they were trying to get an apology to Aboriginals for stolen generation, etc., all the way back 200 years. And John Howard said, well, I didn't do it. No, no, and I I'm going, John, we know you didn't do it. You're just the Prime Minister. You're a figurehead. But, of course, they're paranoid that the Aussies, if, uh, the Aborigines, if you give them an apology, they'll start suing you. And, the, you know, terribly anti, anti-human. You know, they're, they're nah. ish. Well, they've got some interesting parliamentary... I think they're now. they're probably better for Aboriginal communities than they have been in a while, mm. driven by Aussie. I mean, I have an Aussie passport, so I'm, oh, you do. I'm okay. Australian. I can, I can speak the next bit of this in Australian yes. if you like. Um, but <laughs> but they have been really, I think, found wanting with immigration and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I haven't been back before. You know, once I left, it was. I mean, there's a nice segue here to. Norway in Australia because there was around the time you were there was the the oil tanker that picked people up which was a Norwegian tanker mm. and I mean Norway has a pretty good maybe, maybe this is a <laughs> myth mm. uh, a, a pretty good in my mind brand image as a, as a very squeaky clean fair interested in peace and people being fair to each other may not be true but uh, the Tampa was the boat that was yeah. caught with refugees coming from Indonesia and the Aussies wouldn't let it move. We're very charitable abroad. But if that tanker came to Norway, I'm not sure if the Norwegians would let them in. Really? Oh, interesting. We have this. We, it's, it's called the goodness, um, the goodness paradox, but our good, goodness myth. We're known as this amazingly charitable social democratic country. Equal rights and everything is just so good here and we're such good people. And I guess Norway spends per capita more money on aid, which is a great statistics, but then you look internally, 
we should be taking in many more immigrants than we do. We have this huge country, yeah. um, but we don't. We I haven't checked my facts, but it's, it's disgraceful how few immigrants we take in. Everything's okay in Norway as long as you follow the rules. Um, and this is more about kind of society control. Government doesn't need to be that controlling because society itself, you know, there's this unspoken Lutheran, <laughs> thou shalt not think you are more special or more different than anyone else. It's fantastic as long as you fit into the mold, you know, the traditional two-kid family with a cottage, and that's wonderful. But the idea of being different is quite challenging here, which also leads to something that's not very well known is that we have a huge heroin problem in Norway. You know, we have problems with local council funding, we have underfunded schools, we don't, we actually have enough kindergarten spaces. There is free healthcare, but if you do have a serious illness, certain cancers, if the medicine is too expensive... Tough. Tough. You know, and, we, and we're, our government is also changing. The current government is very, you know, right-wing and very deprivatization and you know, capital globalism and well, it's scary. But, join the club. But luckily we've got an everywhere. election coming up now and I really do. Do you think there'll be change? So you're, you're, um, you've taken your two years off, you've just stepped on a surfboard and you're brilliant at that, um, and you're in Sydney. Then what was the next jump? I met someone at surf school who had inherited um, a Mercedes convertible from an ex-East End convict. So we would have to take care of this car, so we went on a road trip down the coast of Brisbane. And, and then I just hopped around, you know, I went to Samoa. And, and did the kind of route, South America, Central America. Brilliant. And I decided that for once in my life, I wasn't going to live according to a time schedule. At the moment, I have an alarm that goes off, you know, four or five times a day for different appointments, when you have to get up, when you've got to go to sleep, yeah. um, all those things. It wasn't easy, actually. It sounds like, you know, oh, how fantastic, but you're so used to that yeah. race. It took me a good two months to kind of get into being a real slob. I know. There was a person on the podcast who said to me that we only, I mean, we're a similar vintage, that we only have 30 summers left. Didn't mean it negatively, but it said we only really think about it when we have 15. And the is last that, five are going to be shit you, anyway. Is that timeline? Is, have you seen that drawn timeline? No. It's actually very scary when you look at it. Out of a timeline of 80 years, the first 10 are fun, the last 10 are fun, and everything in between is work. This idea I wouldn't even say the last 10 are fun. The last yeah, if, five of the last ten are probably fun, but once you get something. And your something. body's still working. Yeah. But, but it's pretty scary. And, yeah. and that, you know, working stage, we're halfway through that. So 30 years is, um, it's precious. Well, I didn't have children or get married for that reason, because I felt a huge reason why everyone is working all that time is because kids are expensive blighters, and I know you have a child, <laughs> and they're great. It but, wasn't planned, but... But, but you know what I mean. You, once you have responsibility for another person, you have to shod, clothe, house, feed, and they t that, that takes money. Where are you going to get money from? The only reason I think we need to work is to get money. And if you have enough money, then you shouldn't work. It would be my kind of ra rather radical approach to things. But Or you should do something that's not, when I say work, work for money or work mm -hmm. for a company or work for the traditional nine to five. You've got to pay the bills. Yeah. But I don't know if you've experienced it, talking to people that you talk to. If you, if you, it sounds so simplistic, but if you generally do what you like and you stick Money at it, comes. it yeah. actually comes and you end up having work which doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And I, and I really do believe it. I hope so, because that's what I'm trying to do now. Well, my, you, you'll, you'll probably be uh, episode uh, 59 of this, and uh, <laughs> I've been doing it for over a year and I haven't, no, no money's come, but I really love it. 
and to me it's given me a purpose and I enjoy meeting people like you and I've just you know mm -hmm. arrived in Norway and we were linked up by mutual friend and here we are talking you know and we it's, really it's have to come back and we have to take you to some other places well i'm going we i want to go back up to nixund and that area and see that northern lights and stuff so i might come back um, uh, in the culture in the is really amazing because it exchanges a lot more to the north and to the east towards baltic and russia the whole kind of the way people are yeah you know that there has a, a long tradition of kind of um spoken word and stories and, yeah. and lots know. of music you yeah, know and yeah. it's um, it really has a lot of kind of unique culture I guess you know one of the things people say about Oslo and I don't know if you've and I come from Bergen so anyone listening from Oslo go oh it's so biased but it lacks an identity yeah there's, there's no one thing distinct that kind of you feel when you think or walk through Oslo yeah I've been here a week and, and I think yeah I mean it feels I've been in. I've been to Sweden, and it feels similar. I mean, there is a civilized. I call it civilized. Like there's very little graffiti, and it's probably your box thing. It's a, everyone feels like they're nice, and as long as you're nice, we're nice, and there's no one gonna. St like in Ireland, you could be picked on by some drunk and have a fight before you can say knife, and you know, <laughs> there's menace, and that's just Dublin. Oh, but, that. You know, that too, does it? So you did your round the world. Did you? Go up a hill and come down a mountain? You know, I learned to take it a bit easy. That the rat race wasn't that important. Um, I mean, I like to talk about that because that's the one thing that a lot of older people in my life have said, why aren't you still working? You could be having a six-figure job and you could be head of this. Or I think it's more because you have to justify their choice. They're doing it. They're like, how come he doesn't have to do what yeah. we're doing? You know, he, isn't he an adult? I know the biggest lesson is you know and it's the hardest thing to do is to be honest not just to other people but to yourself yeah and if you can really really do that I think you can you suddenly realize what you want to do and what you love doing and but well, I think that's um, I mean that's a very good point no one said it like that to me before because I think for me for a, lo a long number of years it was a quest to see how high up a greasy mm -hmm. pole I could climb and I knew it was a greasy pole because all around me people were sliding down but there were expectations and you know you're young you're competitive mm. you want to succeed you want to take part um, and there's certain with everything there's rules and systems and you're just joining it but then yeah. suddenly you realise hey there are well you're working in New York from 9 o'clock in the morning till 10.30 or 11 at night and uh, no one's going to say oh Sean was great he used to work 11 hours a day and then you go what am I doing I'm making an ad for a razor blade. Big deal, you know, like big whoop-de-doo, you know? Mm. And I look at all the talent in the ad business and, and rel related businesses, and I go, the amount of ideas and the amount of intelligence that's being burned. Realized. It's being burned on, on mm. pap. Pap. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've tried to, with some agencies to say, what if, we, what if we did, got nine people and sent them to Africa as part of a thing that we did for our own do goody thing, and we came up with a hundred ideas that cost less than a buck. And then some other company that makes these things on a lathe says, "Well, we make that one." And then suddenly you can make a movement that fixes some problems. That you look at them and go, "How the hell can we not get food to people? That we have mountains of it somewhere. We can, it's a transport problem. We can we get mm. some trucks or something. We have loads of trucks." And you end up, I just ended up getting all. Ugh. Which is why I kind of feel I don't know if it's idealistic, but I kind of feel that those ideas can be done more in a creative art 
sphere. Yeah. That, that, that there's more allowance to do things differently, and today art kind of goes into community projects and social aspects and yeah. alternative economies. Like th- that's what I'm hoping for. I think that is. I can smell that mm. starting to happen a little bit because there's no doubt that technology and our connectedness means people can. You know, there's a great Dublin thing of actually that'll never happen. Don't bother your arse, just have a fine. You know, people with ideas mm. are not as tamped down, tall poppy in Australia. You know, you mm. getting above your station, you're allowed to do that, and you're encouraged to do it. You'll find someone who'll encourage you well, they pretty say, quickly. They say creativity is kind of the next currency. Or there's a I read about a study today which is a bit worrying because these trend analysis. Yeah. They, um, they're saying that today you can see a rich person by the plastic surgery they have, the watch and yeah. the handbag they have. Yeah. But the next generation is investing in education and culture and experiences. So if that then becomes exclusively for the rich, that would be really sad. Yeah. But I think it's going that way. We hope so. You got back to from your tour to Norway? Is that what no, you I got back... Um, I got back from Mexico City back to London and started interviewing for jobs. And I decided, no, 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 I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this or to grow up or to go back into the right race. So I decided to move to New York. And this is maybe another cultural thing, because in London I was actually trying to get it into film, into film production. And people say, you don't want to do that. Do you know how many years you'll be poor? Oh, it's just not worth it. It's so horrendous. You know, do you want to run around for other people and shit productions and bad music videos? I said, why not? But it was, it was, you know, it was so negative. And the first day I got to New York, I said, oh, I'd like to work in film production. They'd go, oh my God, are you a film producer? That's amazing. That's right. so cool. Right. And that was really, really kind of encouraging. You can just... Um, yeah, I agree with that about it. So then I, you know, I, I was basically advised to go to a club where some old film directors used to meet it's called right. office in right. soho i drank for 11 hours yeah good girl and i got a job right and, and it started there so then i went echoes of the old uh, ministry of sound situation i think you just <laughs> jump into the unknown and, yeah. and um so you became a producer yes so okay. I, I worked both on reality tv shows for oh, itv <laughs> from uh, room raiders to my dream treehouse <laughs> Pap um, of a different type. Yes, but I also got to work on um, independent indie great, short films yeah. with some great kind of female producers called Street Pictures. And then I um, I worked in an Irish pub in Wall Street okay. to make my money. <laughs> you had experience from that, from the Edgware Road? It was crazy. <laughs> it was, um, Did you not find that New York, though, is just this kind of echo chamber, breaks you down hard... A dormitory town almost just with stuff built for the people who are sleeping there kind of thing it was changing at the time and I guess they say you know when anyone comes to a city it becomes their city and their story and yeah. New York City is a place that everyone has these amazing stories and and my yeah. trip was you know I'd run out of money and I was sitting on the outside of Brownstone going what am I going to do and someone came along and said here's fifty dollars go speak to Sean at that bar and she'll get you a job and pay me back well, you know, and it, it just started from there. You know, lots of random, amazing things. Yeah. You know. My observation in New York when I was there, and I was there for, I think, too long. I was there for about four years. Uh, is that you can? They say, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But I think you can make it 
anywhere without having to make it there. No, it's tough. You, you really, it teaches you that you really need to know what you're about, otherwise you get swallowed up. Yeah, and, and spat um, out in my case. No, it's, it's really unforgiving and, you know, I did leave New York quite exhausted. Yeah. But you meet, you meet these amazing people. What year did you leave in New York? Uh, 2002 to 2004. Okay. And then where did you go? Back to London, you know, back home. I always keep on going back to London. Do you consider London your spiritual home kind of thing? Or? I mean, you said earlier you consider yourself Malaysia as your country. It took me a long time to kind of divorce myself from London, so I can't say that anymore. Okay. I, I, I moved from London in 2010, and things are so awful there now. You yeah. know, really, the same things that you say about New York, I'd say are true about London now. Yeah. It's, it's so What has it lost in your mind? It's lost that genuine melting pot of people, both culturally and diverse backgrounds. It really is a place where you can only really survive if you're very rich. You know, and that's like zones one, two, three, and four. Yeah. And that never used to be the case. Sad. Um, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, yeah. there's no artists working in yeah. central London anymore unless you're one of the big ones with an art factory. You really feel it. So it was the next major step, you getting involved in art? Well, when I was... Then I continued to work for agencies because you often do what you um, you know best. Yes. Um, especially especially after crazy days in New York, I kind of thought I just want to settle down a little bit. Then I got pregnant, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, having a kid, certain different reality. You can't just pack your bags and go. But at that time, I had already bought this property in North Norway. But as you say, okay. So that's what I'm interested. What part of you then said, "I I feel I need to go back to Norway," and why? Well, I was living in London, and every summer we go back, or I go back to the north of Norway, where my family come from. Yeah. I work on projects there. We run festivals, and it, you know, it's it's a very kind of spontaneous place where you just someone will come along, some instruments, or we'll just make an exhibition. So this is really fantastic energy in this place. People come and invest, and you just see this kind of gentrification that was happening. But in a good way or a bad way? Because gentrification is usually a bad way. It was it was very traumatic because there's not a lot of space and a lot of different interests and more so in a small isolated place people have to work together. That's what's yeah. great about it, you know. And again, I love that idea of just different people coming together. But suddenly there's not enough space for everyone to do what they want to do. So if we're having a loud festival of people playing music or projecting in all the buildings, why you know, keep the noise down? Yeah, you know, because <laughs> someone's got some tourists. Right. And how do you make room for for that? And of course money wins out you know yeah. people with money can invest yeah. um, and often they want to recoup their investments and they go very commercial and so over time more and more of the creative kind of people have been kind of pressed out so there was one building left and it suddenly was up for sale and I didn't have the money for it and I thought my god but I thought yes I'm gonna buy it but somehow I think it was fate so I've you right. know in parallel with this building in North Norway, I'm very interested in seaweed. Oh. You know, anything that's... Big in Ireland, west coast of Ireland. Dilsk, we call it. Yeah, and you have um, a bread made of seaweed yes. as well, yeah, and yeah. flour, and... Yeah. No, I'm really into sustainable kind of food production. Living, and, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and I think we need to. I forage, so I, I find stuff on the shoreline, and I fish for fish, and dry seaweed, and... Yeah, love great. it, and you know, and it's playing. You know, it's like you did as a kid. Yeah, you'd be on the beach, chopping up seaweed, pretending you had a restaurant. But now I actually eat it and, okay. um, and make seaweed for all my guests all the time. I'm really trying to campaign that seaweed is just another sea vegetable that you can. Uh, it's our room. 
Well, we just had a little break because uh, you can probably hear there's a helicopter buzzing overhead. Uh, so apologies for that. At least it's not a drone. It's quite high in the sky, and I hope it's not looking for us. But uh, we're going to pers- we're going to persevere without it. So the seaweed project is part of a grander scheme of things. Let's just I just want to talk formally about the Nixon project. It's a combined working space and it's a cooperative movement that you're trying to galvanize the local people mainly. It's actually both contextually working with local issues, local people, but bringing in designers, artists, so that they can kind of meet and work together or alone. You know, I think think we need these um, open free spaces. We can create kind of new cities, but they, we don't have to be in the same place, in a sense, and, and communities. And this and this space is just one of many others. Yeah, we need free spaces, spaces that are a bit free from art policy and you know funding. Is this your end game, it's, career-wise? Is this where, after all the travels, have you found a? I don't believe that life is that linear. Yeah, I know, but does it feel but does it feel like a kind of a I hope an so. anchor? I hope it's going to be a bit of a base that I can then exchange and and build on, finally something more stable and permanent for myself, yes. You've traveled all over the world, you've had so many different jobs, you've been brave enough to knock ones on the head and take on new challenges. What would you say, looking back to the young girl who was going into boarding school or coming out of boarding school? I would say don't take things too seriously. Don't take it too personally. And it sounds a bit trivial, but it's so important to have fun. I think the older you get, the more you realize that those so-called innocent, childish things like fun and playing, it's so important. And being with nice people, you know. I don't have those ambitions to be top dog and boss and winner. And Because I've interviewed a few people because I've asked, what's it like being on the top? And everyone's waiting for someone to stab them in the back and the compromises they have to do. So I'd rather work in the middle in good projects with lovely people and have fun. That's a great place to finish up, May. That was a brilliant conversation. I didn't expect that at all. I didn't expect that at all. It was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Pine with Shawnee B. I will put a link to the uh, project (laughs) uh, website, which is in development at the moment. It is, but it will be... Yes, I've got to make a web web page. So that's great motivation. And anyone who wants more information can contact me at my my email address, which will be at the end. Thank you so much. It was a brilliant conversation. And the best of luck with the rest of your life. And you too. Thank Thank you. you.